Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This week's theme is a romantic dinner mixtape, where Alan and I will be curating a mixtape featuring a collection of Cupid-inspired jazz standards for you and your Valentine. Yeah, we are going to do something a little bit different this time. Um, During the Christmas episode, we had talked about how only at Christmas time do you actually hear jazz on the radio anymore. And I, I brought up to Dave for Valentine's Day, maybe, just maybe, we could go ahead and do something a little different. Uh, we, we are going to go ahead and give you a mixtape of jazz standards, as he said. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for going along with this. This is like a Valentine's Day present to myself. This is not uh, an area, not only of, uh, not that I have area of expertise in anything, mind you, but this is definitely um, a place where I don't tread very often. I, I, I know most of these songs. Uh, I enjoy them in a live setting. In other words, if I'm out, uh, at a wedding or a nice restaurant, I enjoy. It. But this isn't the music I typically listen to. So right. this is basically you. You are the one in charge today. <laughs> I, I really don't know what to expect uh, with our listeners. I don't know how well this will translate because it's not Gen X. This is our grandparents' music, really. Um, or well, Gen X. If you're on the, you know, closer to the the late end of of Gen X, born maybe 8, 80, might be your parents' music, Could actually. Be, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but uh, nonetheless, we are going to try and give this to you. I, I, I want to give a little bit of explanation, though, uh, here at the beginning. You know, the songs defined as jazz standards, they, they come mostly from four sources, and that would be Tin Pan Alley, Broadway musicals, Hollywood movies, and from jazz artists themselves. And together, they are often referred to as the Great American Songbook. Uh, composers in all these genres, they, they tended to use a similar approach to harmony following certain standard harmonic procedures. But melodic practice, rhythmic practice, form, and history, they were, they were also of importance. And in the 1920s and 1930s, when jazz was taking shape as a cutting-edge popular music, it was characterized by a danceable swing beat, blue notes, characteristic rhythms in both vocal and instrumental timbre. Improvisation was a factor too, but songs were marketed as jazz well before improvised solos really became important in performances. Uh, the rise of the soloist role was a process that began in the 1920s, notably with Louis Armstrong, and, and kind of gathered momentum through the big band years, and culminating in the, the primacy of the soloist in the, the bop years, the 40s and the 50s. Today, improvised solos are the focus of performance, so it's changed dramatically. Um, Many but not all standards are jazz songs, and some of what we're including here today really aren't jazz at all. Um, When recorded, they were simply the pop songs of their day. Gen Xers, I think, we've developed an ear for rock and pop songs, which are rooted in blues, rhythm and blues, country and western. And for that reason, pop songs of the 40s and 50s are often mislabeled as jazz. But, but, well, let me me just step in here. So pop music simply means popular music in the day. Yes. And so the jazz music, this is the way I always understood it, was the popular music of the day during that time. So they're both the jazz, they're jazz and pop standards. That was true through the 40s. Okay. In the 1950s, like... like, Like, So you don't consider swing jazz because the 50s and 60s were all swing. Well, and that's the thing. Swing is largely former jazz performers who after the the, the fading popularity of the big band mm-hmm. they you know they they stayed with their their core audience and they continued to sing songs 
um, well, standards, right, frankly. Right. Um, but they did not continue with the the trending um, the trending uh, progression that that jazz was taking because at that point instrumental jazz was was all well yeah Coltrane Miles that type of stuff and what you found is that very very much of the jazz actually most jazz at that time was going the way of bebop Charlie Parker Dizzy Gillespie sure Um, and that was far and away very very different from the the big band so, swing. So that's true jazz and as as far as the through line of where jazz was going. Right. But I still when I hear Dean Martin that and I hear swing, that's that's jazz to me. Right. And and that's what I'm saying. It's it it's jazz to us. I mean that's how we would identify it, but that's not how they identify it. But how would they identify? What would they call it then? Well let me put it this way. The artists that went that route that that started playing really what we would call lounge music. Sure. Um they were considered sellouts by the jazz community. No, I get that. But what do, what, do, what do they call that music then? If it's not jazz, if it's not swing... Oh, they, they called it just lounge. They just I mean, called it, it lounge? Was, it was lounge, it was swing. They still called it swing. Okay, because swing is, to me, a subgenre of jazz. Right, but it, it was just the... I, it's hard to explain. It's kind of like... Uh, I, I don't know. Like when I go on Sirius, right? I have some jet. Not that I listen to a lot of jazz, but I have my choices, right? And you have the contemporary jazz, which I'm not into as much. No, no. And then not. you have, you know, just I don't know. What, I think it's called real jazz, which is mostly the '60s stuff you you described. Now you're right. There is a different station for crooners, and but to me, those are all just sub, you know, genres of jazz. Right. Now it, it's it's really hard to, you know, I can't even put it into words really well and, and that was my point I mean we, we mislabel anything with the swing beat as, as jazz music but at this time in the 1950s with the advent of rock and roll jazz really went in an entirely different direction and swing was just the the remnants of what had come before by artists that really were just fighting tooth and nail to hold on to their, their trade it wasn't it, it just wasn't categorized by jazz Fans and, and by jazz critics and by jazz performers as jazz music anymore. We see that today. I mean, how many times do we hear rock and you know classic rockers saying rock and roll isn't? Well, that's know. my point. I mean, if 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 by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame standard, okay, if if hip hop and rap are considered under the umbrella of of rock or rock and roll, I should say, then the, why isn't the similar for jazz, where there's an overall umbrella called jazz, and below that you have swing, you have lounge, you have traditional jazz you have the newer experimental stuff easy listening jazz you know it kind of fits under that big umbrella like 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 rock so there's two two big umbrellas out there well three you have classical you have jazz you have rock and then all sorts of stuff underneath and crossing over country would be another country has its own yeah Yeah. um yeah i i don't know i don't make the rules (laughs) no i just (laughs) it surprises me because yeah yeah, i i I always understood that there's a huge difference between john coltrane and and tony bennett but to me, they're just both different kinds of jazz. One's vocal, one's more pop. The other is experimental and, like you said, improvisational. But to me, they're just both different subsets of jazz. Just like Led Zeppelin's rock and roll and um, Cyndi Lauper's rock and roll. I mean, they're, they're very different, but they're under that same umbrella. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't disagree with you, personally. It, it's just the way that it was categorized by the, the recording artists themselves. Yeah, it was, you know, Nat King Cole is a great example. Nat King Cole... The jazz community disowned him. Um, in fact, Louis Armstrong, who is one of the founders of jazz music, he, I mean, jazz improvisation, that was Louis' thing. He, he basically pioneered it. And 
by the fifties when he was and and into the sixties when he's singing "What a Wonderful World," the jazz community just kind of wrote him off entirely. I mean, it was you know to them he had and and Nat King Cole before him, a lot of them, a lot of these artists, as I said, they sold out. They they had left jazz to for commercial success. So it's and, similar, like with alternative artists that that maybe very gathered much, a following yes. in the eighties. And then the 90s found commercial success. Yep. And a lot of their fans were upset because they that's exactly found it. commercial yeah, That's exactly success. it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, it really makes no difference, though, because whether jazz or pop, I mean, the standards have endured for good reason. I mean, you know, there, there's something very comforting about them. Uh, perhaps it's the charming lyrics. Uh, maybe it's the eternal melodies. But one thing's for sure, the emotions are real, and they're performed beautifully by artists who actually favor the traditional music forms. Which brings me to one final note, though. Jazz is, is a very serious and noble pursuit with a culture and history of its own, fed by a pool of nuts and bolts techniques that can, to, they, it can to, to outsiders, feel as obscure and nebulous as the formula for Coca-Cola. <laughs> I mean, really. Today, pop stars are increasingly recording jazz albums, but very rarely do they get it right. Um, Rod Stewart, Robbie Williams, Lady Gaga, Annie Lennox, just, just to name a few, and they may think that kicking it with a zooty big band can, can kind of varnish their careers in the mystique and musical sophistication of Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, Sarah Vaughan, but they're, they're kind of deluding themselves because the context is all wrong. Uh, they, they lack expertise in rhythmic displacement, diction, and intonation, and these are the very things that define vocal jazz. So they can likely sing along with Ella, you know, word for word on her recordings, but they fall into this trap of only being able to sing the song as interpreted by Ella. And, you know, pop musicians like the rest of us, they don't have an ear for the vocal techniques that a lot of these standards require either. Now, some artists get it right. Linda Ronstadt in the 80s, she she was legitimately singing jazz music. But a lot of the artists today that try, and especially all these uh, compilations where, you know, everybody takes a turn singing with Tony Bennett, it, it's, it's kind of painful to listen to if you are a jazz fan because... Bennett is singing jazz, and everyone around him is not, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't know, it's just kind of funny to me. But yeah, no, I, I love the alternative analogy. You said it better than I was trying to explain it. Yeah, it, it's just, I, I think within the community itself, jazz has for a long time kind of, it's kind of an elitist, you know, um, I mean, the Hepcats and, you know, just what's cool and what's not. I mean, it's starting in the 1950s. It kind of went the way of, of a very elitist form of music. And, you know, swing, which, you know, under that umbrella term that you're talking about, sure. I mean, it's it's jazz music in that respect. But within the community, yeah, that, the artists just lost all respect, a lot of them, because they were commercially successful and they were singing simply they were singing music that was on the pop charts mm-hmm. the moment you hit the pop charts with jazz then you know the, the community basically kind of thumbs gotcha. their nose yep. at you yep. that's, that's kind of how it works okay well um, and like we established on the last couple episodes we're trying something new um, we did uh, share each other's lists um, I know that takes some of the spontaneity out of it and some of the surprise and, and the whole idea of having the alternates but we kind of felt that maybe some of the episodes were of a little higher quality when we could both um, 
comment on each other's picks because we've heard them because we were getting to a point where for some of the uh, different topics we were picking a lot of music that uh, each of us were not familiar with so we did the same thing again so uh, you know I know what you picked you know what what I've picked and um, are you ready to grab your fedora and scotch on the rocks and get swinging I am I am well swinging means something completely different today yes (laughs) I gotta be careful how I say that so oh that's very true all right, well, it's side A, um, and I begin. So here we go. Um, I begin with a 1954 classic called Something's Gotta Give. Um, with its, the words and music that were written by Johnny Mercer, who dates back to the, the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, it was written for and first performed by Fred Astaire in the 1955 film Daddy Long Legs. And... The song was nominated for Best Original Song in 55 for the Academy Awards, and it actually lost to Love is a Many Splendored Thing, which came from the same film. Uh, the song playfully uses the irresistible force paradox, um, which asks what happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object, as a metaphor for a relationship between a vivacious woman and an older, world-weary man. Uh, the song's lyrics kind of echo the plot of Daddy Long Legs, uh, if anyone has seen it, in which a, a very reserved man in his 50s, played by Astaire, he falls in love with a, a young woman in her early 20s. So following the film's release, the song became a favorite among jazz and pop vocalists. The, the biggest selling version was recorded by the McGuire sisters. Uh, theirs reached number five uh, on the Hot 155, though Sammy Davis Jr.'s version from that same year is often considered the better recording. Mel Torme, being Crosby, Ella Fitzgerald. There's, there's the one. That's that's my favorite, Ellis. Yeah. Oh, really? Ella's my favorite female vocalist yes. of, of, of the jazz era. And so I knew this song only from, remember, I'm very limited, okay? Right. yeah. So when listening to your list, I immediately heard this. I'm like, oh, it's, that's Ella's song. Again, thinking in terms of, right. <laughs> I've never heard any other version other than Ellis. So that's yeah. the one I like. Well, Ella Fitzgerald, she's, if you only know one artist, she's the one you want to know. Right. I mean, she's considered the... The, the greatest jazz vocalist of all time. Okay. Um, yeah, she she had a version of this. They all took turns recording it, as did Frank Sinatra. In fact, as an aside, his recording of Something's Got to Give was to be featured in the 1962 film Something's Got to Give, starring Marilyn Monroe. But the film was abandoned following Marilyn's death. So, you know, Sinatra's take on the song did not reach the heights of popularity that it probably otherwise would have. I didn't choose any of these legendary artists' versions, though. And That's it, what I was going to ask, because to me, the, the I don't know Robin, is it Robin McKell? Robin McKelly? McKelly. McKelly. Um, she did a wonderful job, but it sounded very much like Ella's version. So again, I haven't heard the other one, so I don't know if she was kind of trying to, if the other ones are very different, but her vocal style and, and her delivery was very much Ella, so I was wondering why you didn't just pick Ella's version. Well, for one thing, we said we're not going to repeat artists. Okay. So I, I can't have 12 Ella Fitzgerald songs. Okay, so there was another Ella <laughs> so, Fitzgerald song you wanted. Yeah. That makes sense. And and secondly, I she's, McKelly is actually, she's, I don't really hear Ella Fitzgerald in her in her music. I mean, she's she's a bicoastal stylist, and her, her expressive delivery sounds to me a lot like Anita O'Day, except when she sounds eerily like Nancy Wilson. I, I don't hear... Well, sometimes Ella listen to Ella's version of this particular song. Well, I don't I, mean I, Ella I in general, well, I know, but just back-to-back, back, it just... Oh, I know Ella's version. The same vibrato and the same places and the way she... 
I don't know. Uh, well, McKelly, let me put it this way. She's, she's blessed with O'Day's rel- unrelenting verve, as well as her innate sense of swing. Yet she echoes Wilson's relaxed authority. It's not... Ella... Ella is more... How do I say it? Ella had just a a lulling effect. I mean, she, her her songs, she just, they came out from her so beautifully, you know, and, and so refined at times. McKelly to me is, does not have that, that lush um, delivery. It's just weird. In this instance, like when I, in fact, I didn't even look at the artist when I started playing the playlist and I thought it was Ella, but I thought it was a different recording that she had made be done later in life because I'm like, oh, I never heard this version of, and, and I looked hmm. and it wasn't Ella. So that's how oh. much I thought it sounded like her in this particular. Interesting. No, no, I, I don't hear Ella. I mean, every every female jazz vocalist, you know, learned the trade from listening to Ella. Right. And, it was just and, the and same. And Billy. Same range, same. For, again, I, I don't know Robin McKelly's other stuff. So this may be an exception. Uh, her other stuff, she she sounds right. far and away very different. Right. Um, well, not very different, but um, a lot of her work is um, slower ballads and then yeah it, her voice the the texture of her voice changes as she goes into the the different tempos uh, regardless it's not easy living up to legends right but mckelly does just that obviously i mean you mistook her for ella fitzgerald which is the highest uh praise you can give a jazz vocalist really um her dynamite debut album from 2006 it's titled introducing robin mckelly and it embraces a retro big band vibe and her exuberant, slightly breathy version of this song, Something's Gotta Give, is the album's opening track. To me, from the very first note, you just realize there's something special here. I and mean, she's recognized as one of the true talents of her generation today, for, for good reason. If you like great standards sung by a singer with a big voice, a real jazz feel, excellent diction and intonation, and with top-class arrangements played by a swinging big band, you will absolutely want this album in your music library. When an irresistible force such as you Meets an old immovable object like me You can bet just as sure as you live Something's gotta give, something's gotta give, something's gotta give When an irrepressible smile such as yours Warms an old Implacable heart such as mine Don't say no Because I insist Somewhere, somehow Someone's gonna get kissed So on guard Knows what the fates Have in store From their vast Mysterious sky I'll try hard Ignoring those lips I adore But how long can anyone try? Interesting. I I would not have thought you'd mistake this one for Ella. But again, my scope, I mean, it's it's kind of like um, if you're not a connoisseur or something, if you're not a connoisseur of coffee or wine, a lot of wines all taste the same, you know, until you get to really know your wines and then there's a stark difference. And so... I'm going off. It, it may not even be vocally. It, it's just the arrangement. Everything sounded very similar to the track that I know from the box set that I have for Ella Fitzgerald. So okay. That's all. 
I mean, I could go back, and I'm sure hear subtle differences, but that was my first reaction. Very cool. All right. Well, you mentioned that you didn't want to pick uh, Diana Krall because a lot of people knew her. Um, I did start off with Diana Krall. um, And the only reason I know her, so this is how limited I am in my my jazz knowledge, um, was um, there was a, well, there's several of them now, but that's what I call Christmas. Yes. And uh, the very first one came out, I think, sometime back in the, the 90s, maybe. And, you know, a lot of them were the standard Christmas songs that we all know and now have heard on the radio so many times. I'm sick of them. The, the second part of that CD, though, had a lot of artists that I'd never heard of. And one of them was this kind of jazzy rendition of Jingle Bells mm-hmm. by Diana Krall. And so I, I kind of had to, to look her up. I suppose that's the whole point of these. That's what I call music records or albums is because it oh yeah it, it offers a way to, to introduce uh, people to new artists. And so, of course, this is before Spotify and stuff. But that's when I kind of, other than Harry Connick Jr., Diana Krall might be the only like modern jazz artist that I'm, I'm familiar with. So, okay. yeah. So I decided to start with her. Um, I you know later learned that she's one of the more prominent modern jazz vocalists and pianists in the last three decades. She's Canadian, I believe. Yes. Right. And um, she is the only jazz singer. This was great. That has eight albums that debuted at number one on the Billboard jazz chart. True. Now, you would say, jazz, this, now here's my question for you. If you become commercially successful... You're no longer jazz, but what if it's on the jazz chart? Well, the jazz chart's different. That's different. That's different. So the fact that she had eight number ones. Yeah. Now, is she still ostracized from the jazz community because people like her? Well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you ask that. There are so many naysayers who hate on Diana Krall. So many. And I could never understand it. I mean, those who complain about her complain about everything. I mean, her voice, um, her, her choice of tunes, her style. It just goes on and on. I mean, mostly it's in the comparisons, too. She isn't Ella. She isn't Billy. She isn't Sarah. She's a pretender. She's someone not worthy to uphold the jazz vocal tradition. And then the final insult, she's not a jazz singer, right? I I dig Diana Krall. I mean, her breathy, husky, and deep voice is instantly recognizable. And her, her choice of tunes is delectable, really. I mean, her renditions of them are full of personality and charm. And when called upon to, she swings her backside off, really. Uh, her vocal style has always been more comparable to what instrumentalists do with their horns. And, and as far as I'm concerned, Diana Krall is one of the best talents on the current jazz scene. But yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the jazz community, and they, they've never accepted I mean, her. I can get Michael Buble because he's kind of obnoxious. You yeah, know? Very much so, yes. Um, and, and like you said, going back to your original point, um, Michael Buble is singing these pop standards where, and again, I don't know a lot of Diana Krall other than the fact that I'm aware of her, So, but it, to me, at least I, I chose Deed I Do, which really it sounds much more traditional jazz than, than, than like a Michael Buble kind of pop. Oh, yeah. Thing, okay? Yeah. Um, the song Deed I Do was originally... Recorded by the Nat King Cole Trio in 1943. We talked about... So that's when Nat King Cole was okay, right? When yeah. he was with the Nat King with, Cole when, trio. when he's with the trio, he's... he's good, okay. Quote-unquote jazz, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was their second number one song. Ray Charles also recorded a big band version in 1967. Ray Charles has an amazing version of it, too, yeah. And like all standards, dozens of other notable versions have been released, like Ella, Les Paul, Chet Atkins, Peggy Lee, Marvin Gaye, a whole host of them. Um, I'll just kind of wrap it up here saying I, I love... Piano jazz. We had this discussion last Christmas when I chose Vince Giardi for Peanuts, and you were like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I kind of like piano jazz. So <laughs> I like Babe Brubeck. I know these are like obvious names, but I like the stuff. But I really, really like when it exists in a trio. So um, I like how the, I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for the upright bass, for oh, that yeah. sound. 
And and this, I don't even think there's any percussion. I think it's no. a trio in the sense of it's piano, it's her vocal, and it's the bass, and that's it. Well, it's piano. Uh, her voice and piano are, are one and the same. There's guitar and bass. Oh, okay. Is there yeah, guitar there, in there? Okay. It's well. very subtle then. Yeah, but it must be well, flourishes. On, on this particular track. Um, okay. But yeah, no, there, there's no percussion in the, the trio right. that she's playing with on this. Right. Let me just I was thrilled that you included her, and I was even more excited that you chose this song. <laughs> this tribute to Nat King Cole, I, the trio, is hands down her best jazz album. Um, it was recorded when Crawl was still relatively unknown. The piano is more prominent. There are fewer love songs. The album also provides the best example of what Crawl's voice can offer. It's full and sometimes husky. Just her uninhibited enthusiasm roars up tempo, and then the slower songs are a revelation to anyone who would later write her off as having a thinner, emotionless voice. Do I want you? Oh my, do I, honey? Indeed I do. Do I need you? Oh my, do I, honey? Indeed I do. That's why I'm always hanging round you. Do I love you? Oh my, do I, honey? Did I do? This, it's, it's a fantastic. Yeah, it's early stuff. It's 96. It's before, in fact, she didn't even start charting, I think, till her third third, right. rec, third or fourth record. I think this was her second or third record. So Yeah, no, it's this album. I mean, if you're going to buy a One Diana Crawl album, this is the album I would recommend. I mean, it... it and the album, we didn't say that, but it's all of you. It's, all which of it's, you. it's a dedication to the Nat King Cole trio, so Correct. they're all Nat King Cole songs. Yeah, and, and it features a, a handful of well-known, longtime favorites from the Nat King Cole trio, but Crawl, I mean, she actually pays a more complete tribute. She includes a lot of the lesser-known songs as well which really impressed me when I first heard the disc, actually. Deed I Do, I, it's an older song. It dates back to at least the mid-20s because Benny Goodman included it on his debut recording. But McCraw's version, it's very much like Cole's in both performance and spirit. Um, I, I love it. I, I think I, I, you picked an amazing opener. So for someone that didn't know a lot of jazz, I was... Well, I just know Diana Cole. So. Right, well, but, but it, it's like... I don't know. I was the the jazz gods were smiling upon you with your first pick. So now I will say another great version you didn't mention is by uh, Blossom Deary. She was a vocalist uh, in the fifties. With she was actually a vocalist, but she was part of the bebop movement. Um, she she has another great version as well. I might might put it on our uh, mentioned songs just to to see what you think. But oh, very good. All right. I, All right, you're up. I am up. All right, well, for my next song, I picked the classic What a Little Moonlight Can Do. Uh, it was written by Harry M. Woods. It was featured in the 1934 film Roadhouse. Uh, the song was sung in the film by Violet Lorraine, and it included an introductory verse that is rarely heard in subsequent covers. And again, Billie Holiday, Helen Ward, Bing Crosby, Nancy Wilson, Anita O'Day each cut uh, the intro from their versions of the song. Um, but once more, I'm, I'm eschewing all these legendary artists, and I'm, I'm going to go instead with a contemporary artist. Uh, this time it's the sensational Canadian singer Emily Claire Barlow. Another one I've never heard of. Well, I mean, 
she's a two-time Juno Award winner, winner, and she is my absolute favorite, my my favorite of the new crop of female jazz vocalists. Um, you know, Diana Krall, she remains Canada's most celebrated jazz vocalist, but I believe Emily Claire Barlow, she's now 12 albums into her career. I think she outshines Krall, really, uh, which is no small feat. Barlow's voice is lighter and it's brighter than Krall's, and, and her range is wider. Her interpretive expressiveness is more alluring. Like Krall, Barlow started out focusing almost exclusively on standards uh, from the American and Brazilian songbooks, but has started of late to include more contemporary covers. Um, her sixth album, The Very Thought of You, is my favorite. It, it remains her most personal. Uh, there, there's just an up-close and intimate tone that starts with the gorgeous cover art and it continues throughout the entire recording. Um, the arrangements, they're fresh, they're focused, they're all her own, and she's joined by an all-star band. Um, she performs a number of gems from the American Songbook, including silky smooth renditions of Nat King Cole's Almost Like Being in Love, Doris Day's Dream a Little Dream of Me, but her take on Billie Holiday's What a Little Moonlight Can Do is the clear winner, as far as I'm concerned. Um, she does something a bit different with, with the, the, this well-known tune. I mean, her arrangement draws from several inspirations, uh, the most prevalent being Tyranny Sutton's East of the Sun, which unfortunately Spotify does not have. Uh, Barlow interacts in the back half of the song with only percussion, uh, almost in a call and response. And in her liner notes from the album, she says that the resulting vocalese just came pouring out as an extension of the lyric, continuing with the idea of infatuation in a stolen, stolen moment or two. Um, you know, Emily Claire Barlow, she's not as well known as Diana Krall. She may never reached Crawl's level of name recognition, but she is an incomparable vocal jazz jewel that just dazzles. And her, her phrasing, her articulation, paired with just a winning verve and a daring nature, really set her apart from other female vocalists. Ooh, what a little moonlight can do. Ooh, what a little moonlight can do to you. You're in love, your heart is a flutter and all day long You only stutter cause you're a poor tongue Just cannot utter the words I love you Ooh, what a little moonlight can do Ooh, ooh. ooh wait a while Till the moonbeam comes peeping through And you'll get bold, you can't resist him And all you'll say once you have kissed him, is ooh, 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 what a little moonlight can do. Oh, what a, oh, what a, oh, a, oh, ooh, ooh, what a little moonlight can do. What'd you yeah, think no, I, I loved her. I loved her tone, okay. um, specifically the, her scatting and, and the woo-woos are just out of this world. Yeah. So that in and of itself, yeah, no, kind of sexy. Uh, she blows me away. I mean, if if she's one that you know, on song kick, I'm constantly looking to see when she's touring, when she's you know coming to, to the Northeast Ohio area, and she hasn't yet. And you know, she's 12 albums into her career, but she's Canadian and she doesn't have the name recognition. So I, my guess is she probably just stays in the Canadian area. Oh, well, yeah, know. it's not. I mean, you can get up to Windsor pretty quickly, so well, that's you should very look true. for her in Canada. Yeah, but I, I just, I can't get enough of Emily Claire Barlow. She's just my favorite of the the new artists, and she's, yeah, her voice, it's, 
It's, she can get pretty sexy. It's, yep. it's, it's good stuff. That's good. I mean, and when we talk about these standards in, in jazz vocalist, really, and we've said this before, your voice becomes an instrument more than maybe in some other genres, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, in rock, you know, yes, your voice is an instrument, but the guitar is kind of the primary instrument. But in these vocal tracks, it's all about the vocal. It is. I guess it's kind of like today's pop music, you know, with like Ariana Grande oh, and yeah. Mariah Carey and stuff like that. So True. You really have to kind of have your own... Um, it's, it's both. We talk in rock, like Bob Dylan isn't the greatest, um, you know, vocalist in the classical sense, but he's got personality. I think in this type of music, you have to have that personality and the chops at the same oh, time. Without question. To really pull it off. Yeah. All right. Your turn. Uh, my next pick, and again, I'm going to pick all the obvious ones, so that's, you know, not being a, a jazz connoisseur, but um, um, I had to go with the Tony Bennett. Yep. Another, another swinging uh, singer from... Um, primarily the 50s and 60s, but he's continued to record, uh, you know, even recently. Uh, I chose, of course, what do you pick? My, my, pick, my favorite is probably The Way You Look Tonight. I love his version the best, um, but I know you wanted a different version of that one, so yeah. I'm going to let you have that. So I went with The Best Is Yet To Come, which uh, isn't quite his, his signature song. I think that would be I Left My Heart in San Francisco, which is on the same record. Right, yeah. But uh, that was 1962. Um, I first began to explore Tony Bennett in the mid-90s, like probably many Gen Xers, I think, after the uh, Unplugged recording for MTV. Um, Xers will remember um, they Unplugged. I think it was Bon Jovi kind of had this special where they went acoustic and it was really popular. And uh, all of a sudden, they kind of had this idea for a show. And so all these different artists, um, you know, performed. And sometimes it was a little bit, you know, strange because like, um, you know, Kiss, for instance, unplugged, you know, <laughs> that was really, you know, the Nirvana one, of course, became hugely popular as did oh, the yeah. Clapton one. And then Springsteen went in and said, screw you, unplugged in his instruments yeah. and yeah, <laughs> just he, played a regular concert. He, he performed plugged. Yeah. But having Tony Bennett, it was kind of that era in the 90s where artists like Johnny Cash, for instance, were being discovered by Xers and he was playing Lollapalooza and Tony Bennett was one that was being kind of discovered and so they decided to do an Unplugged and um, not only did I love that record but the fact that he did a lot of duets with uh, Elvis Costello and uh, Katie Lang and a few others as well so right. um, the man has sold over 50 million records worldwide so I'd say that's pretty <laughs> incredible uh, he is still recording despite his slow progression of Alzheimer's disease that was diagnosed in 2016 uh, in 2018 he released a record with Diana Krall, we just talked about, uh, and he released his second album with Lady Gaga, which I know you said... That one is, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you heard it? I haven't, no. Okay. I, you know, if you're a Lady Gaga fan, I'm sure you will, it will be very, you know, it, it'll endear itself to you. I, but she just, she's so clearly not at his level vocally. So it's an example of what I was getting at earlier. Um, they have chemistry though together. They did, yeah. And I mean, I, I've seen I'll them, them other performances live. I've seen them and they right. do have a chemistry. This song, I just, I like the cheery optimism of it, of The Best Is Yet To Come. Uh, it was recorded first by uh, Cy Coleman in 1962, uh, but then it re uh, recorded two years later before Sinatra's kind of classic version in 1964. Well, you know, I... Yeah, I, you bring up so many good points. I, first of all, I, I'm thrilled you included him. I, I, I'm so happy because Bennett was on my short list a number of times, but he kept dropping out of the 12. Uh, hands down, he is the greatest living American songbook singer. And of, he just, he's arguably the last one that we have left. And sadly, we are going to lose him soon. He's 95. And he, he, has, he has actually officially retired from from 
performing. I don't know. You said that he's still performing, but I, I read. No, it. no, I'm sorry. I just meant he was up to 2018. Oh, he was to, still okay. yeah. recording. I was going to say. Um, performing through recording, not maybe live. Okay. Yeah, because I was going to say um, battling Alzheimer's. Yeah. They finally came out and, and you know, acknowledged that he right, has right. Alzheimer's. 95 years old. He, he has officially retired from live performances. But. Yeah, Bennett. I mean, and you you were spot on on this. And Bennett scored a number of hits in the fifties. He made an uh, an adult radio comeback in the sixties. He faded in the rock era, and then made this huge comeback in the nineties. Which you know, unlike all the other artists that that we're going to be talking about here, he has remained. He he became, and he has remained popular across the generations. That's something that a lot of these artists just do not have. Um, the best is yet to come. I mean, it has that sauntering swing and, and minimalist instrumental backing. Uh, you're right. It, can, it comes from I Left My Heart in San Francisco. That album was huge for Bennett um, for three reasons. One, the title track soon became a signature song. Two, it was his 15th album, but the first to reach platinum status. And on the strength of its title track, the album climbed to number five on the top uh, 200. And, and three, it was the album that launched Bennett's first of the two major comebacks. Um, but, you know, in his approach to this song, uh, Bennett kind of single-handedly turned The Best Is Yet To Come into a standard. Sinatra, like you said, he didn't cover it for two years. I mean, it was two years later that Sinatra did his version. And while Sinatra's version is extraordinary, I would say Bennett's is the definitive recording. I'd say it's it's stronger than, than It may Sinatra's. be stronger, but I think more people recognize the Frank Sinatra version. Well, that's because Sinatra gets all the... Right. You know, the accolades. But um, no, Bennett is just, oh, he's he's one for the age. It's going to be a, a very sad day when we, when we lose Bennett. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along and everything started to hum. Still, it's a real good bet the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come, and babe, won't it be fine? You think you've seen the sun, but you ain't seen it shine. Wait till the warm-up's underway. Wait till our lips have met Wait till you see that sunshine day You ain't seen nothing yet The best is yet to come And babe, won't it be fine The best is yet to come Come the day you're mine Come the day you're mine Okay. Well, my next one, um, I another artist I never heard of. <laughs> yep, I'm going to introduce to you now Jeremy Davenport. Um, he is one of New Orleans' best kept secrets. Uh, he comes with stellar credentials. Uh, from a young age, he studied and played with members and guests of the St. Louis Symphony, and which uh, that included an early introduction to Wynton Marsalis. The two became uh, lifelong friends. Following high school, Davenport attended the Manhattan School of Music under the direction of trumpeter Raymond Mace. And during this time, Marsalis introduced Davenport to Harry Connick Jr., with whom he also became close friends. 
So Marsalis and Connick, they, they persuaded Davenport to move to New Orleans, where he enrolled at the University of New Orleans, and then studied under Winton's father, jazz pianist Ellis Marsalis. So he's just, he's surrounded by these, you know, jazz luminaries. After graduation, Davenport then toured internationally with Harry Connick Jr. He, he was the, uh, trumpet, the first chair trumpet in Harry Connick's big band for six years. Um, in fact, um, he would not have been performing with on the When Harry Met Sally soundtrack, but his, Connick's next album, We Are In Love, from that point forward for six years, okay. uh, yeah. Davenport was on the trumpet. Um, and after that six years touring, he, he finally decided to, to call it quits. He returned to New Orleans, and that's when he began his recording career. Um, this song, it, it actually comes from his second album. It's titled Maybe in a Dream. It was released in 97. And from start to finish, it, it is a collection of just hopelessly romantic jazz. Uh, the album was very well received, earning Davenport name recognition and a loyal fan base uh, who quickly learned what jazz musicians and industry, pe- industry people had, had known for years. Not only was Davenport in the top group of New Orleans trumpet players, like Terrence Blanchard or Nicholas Payton, his, his prowess in singing, writing, and arranging were equally superb. Um, Davenport opens Maybe in a Dream with A Beautiful Friendship, my, my next song. It is just a superlative swinging version of Ella Fitzgerald's 56 classic. Uh, now, Ella's is very slow. I don't know if you know Ella's version. But it, it is a ballad, very slow. Davenport, I mean, he swings the hell out of this song. And it, it really, it's a romantic tale of two friends falling in love. And, and Davenport's trumpet, on which he uses a mute most of the time, it's, it's understated and reticent. He uses a standard Louis Armstrong approach of singing a quiet love story, then continuing it through his trumpet solo and then back to the lyrics. And his, his Chet Baker-influenced trumpet sound and vocals blend perfectly with pianist Glenn Patcha and bassist Peter Washington, drummer Gregory Hutchinson. And, and the rousing instrumental break of the song, the interplay of the instruments, is just exhilarating. Um, today, Davenport actually remains a vital part of the New Orleans jazz scene. You can find him every Wednesday through Saturday night performing live at the Davenport Lounge. It's an upscale, lively venue located in the Ritz-Carlton, New Orleans. Uh, the lounge was actually named in honor of Davenport. He's the hotel's resident headline entertainer. So someday, I hope to visit the lounge, sip on a cocktail, and just sway all night to, to live jazz from Jeremy Davenport. So, yeah, I just, you know, the guy's doubly blessed because, you know, they're a great vocalist and they're great trumpet players. And we talked about Diana Krall. You know, she's a pianist that, you know, is a pretty good vocalist. But this guy's got a boat. Oh, yeah. He, he could be just... Of a standalone vocalist in his own right and be fine, but the fact that he also plays a mean trumpet, that's uh, that's he, he's yeah. definitely gifted. Yeah, and and he he is like, you know, Chet Baker just you know reincarnated. I mean, he he sounds like Chet Baker, he plays like Chet Baker, but he he does his own thing, you know. And and um, yeah, no, I you know I stumbled upon him. I, I used to be um, years ago. I um, with money to spend because I was single and living away from home and, and the like. I, uh, I joined this jazz, um, I don't remember what it was called, but it was some mail order thing like Columbia House. But what they would do is they, they you didn't choose jazz albums, but rather they sent you jazz samples, jazz samplers each month. And I, I stumbled upon um, Davenport. He was, he was, on one of those, and it was a it was his original um, 
whatever happened, which also comes from maybe in a dream. And I just, I was blown away. Went out and bought the disc, and I, it just, yeah, I, I fell in love with his music immediately. But he is one nobody knows. I mean, I've, I've talked to, to people who know, I mean, I know jazz, but trust me, I do not know, you know, I'm no expert in the genre at all. It's, it's just kind of a, an interest of mine, but I'm, I'm not obsessive. There are people that know jazz music, and when I bring up Jeremy Davenport, they've never heard of him. I mean, he really is just this really good, it, it's just a, it's, as I said, it's New Orleans' best kept secret. I mean, he is, he's so incredibly talented. This is the end of a beautiful friendship. It ended a moment ago. This is the end of a beautiful friendship I know for your eyes told me so We were always like sister and brother Until tonight when we looked at each other This is the end of a beautiful friendship And just the beginning of love And he draws a lot of comparison to Connick um, when when people do know him, which, understandably, they played together for so long. Um, no, glad you liked it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, my next pick, um, I owe this one to my mother. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, this is not a jazz standard. This would be a pop standard. Yes. Okay. So you, no, I get, I get, I get that. No, no, no. I'm, well, no, I'm saying at the beginning you asked what the difference was. This one would be. But it's. I still think it falls under the umbrella of jazz. Oh, it absolutely. Okay. No, no, okay. no, no. I'm not saying it shouldn't be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at all. Right. No, I love this song. I see what you're saying. But but this one, yeah, it's it, technically not a jazz. Gotcha. Standard. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. So the style is jazz, but it's yeah. No, yeah. We got it. All right. Yeah. From 1957, I'm going with Johnny Mathis, and of course, chances are, which is his signature song. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom loved two male singers more than any other: Barry Manilow and Johnny Mathis. Um, when I was young and exploring her record collection, I was not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I much preferred her uh, Sgt. Pepper's uh, record. Um, I couldn't imagine uh, anything sounding more boring or grown up than Johnny Mathis. Mm. When she was playing Johnny Mathis, I just wanted to leave the room. It was awful. But now as an adult, I do appreciate the classic crooner for what he is. Um, Mathis, I mean, Tony Bennett sold 50 million records worldwide. Mathis recorded 73 studio albums. Right. 73. The first in 1956, the most recent in 2013. He is still with us today. He's, he's 86 years old. I'm not sure if he's still doing anything since 2013 was his last recording. But uh, like I said, this song remains a signature song. It's such a simple melody. The arrangement is fairly sparse for that traditional you know, 
I was going to say jazz standard, but now I'll say pop standard, <laughs> uh, highlighting his very, very smooth vocals. So, folks, if you're looking for a, a song to steal a quick slow dance, uh, maybe after dinner, this is the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the, there are three admittedly broad categories in, in which most love songs can be categorized. I mean, you, you have the love songs that tell heartfelt stories that are so gripping that they elevate the music. Yeah, on the other hand, you have those love songs that have lighthearted, even frivolous lyrics that are elevated by the catchiness of an engaging mu- musical composition. And then there's that third category uh, that includes the greatest love songs of all time, right? Songs that offer explosively poetic storytelling that perfectly harmonizes with the music and the idiosyncratic style of the performer. The grandfather of that category, I mean, just the colossal epic love song of years past is, is Johnny Mathis's haunting rendering of Chances Are. I mean, it's... Now, interestingly, he... There are only a handful of artists, and most of them, if I name them, you would not know, that have covered this. This is an example where it is Johnny Mathis's song. Right. Um, you know, no, no one else of, of his, um, you know, prestige has, has ever recorded it. I mean, they, they all just conceded that, uh, you know, they could not beat his performance. And Mathis, yeah, I, I, I don't think there was any woman alive through the 50s and 60s that did not swoon for him. And it, what, what what I always loved is that he he was biracial. He was he, he's a gay man. Of course he wasn't out at, at right. that time. But you know it just he embodied everything that the strict conservative because you know a lot of the a lot of the very conservative uh, you know population that, that were just anti rock and roll they loved Mathis, and they all thought he was white. They all thought he was white, and it just—I always found it really amusing. I mean, he broke barriers, and just—he was so loved by white audiences that it just—I I don't know. It was—it's really kind of astounding to me. And yeah, what talent! He is just amazing. Chances are, cause I wear a silly grin. The moment you come into view Chances are you think that I'm in love with you Just because my composure sort of slips The moment that your lips meet mine Chances are you think my heart's your valentine In the magic of moonlight When I sigh, hold me close, dear Chances are you believe the stars that fill the sky All right, you want to go for a fourth artist in a row that I've never heard of? Yeah. Go for it. Well, and I knew that might happen because after number four, <laughs> now after number four here, I, I take the deep dive into all the classics. Um, but yeah, number four, I I have chosen the song Taking a Chance on Love. And I was really torn. There were two artists that I wanted to use for this same song. Um, the one that I did not use, her name is Renee Osted. Uh, she's a, a younger um, jazz singer as well, phenomenal. Uh, talent. 
I ended up going with Jane Monheim. Um, she is, uh, well, um, let me take a step back. Um, Taking a Chance on Love, it's a popular song. It was from the 1940 Broadway musical Cabin in the Sky. Um, and it was written by Vernon Duke uh, with lyrics by John Lithaus and, and Ted Fetter. Uh, it has become one of the most recorded standards in jazz music. Um, countless artists have recorded the song. Benny Goodman's cover featured Helen Forrest. Um, his charted the highest. It actually reached number one in 1943. Ella Fitzgerald's version is considered by most to be the quintessential version. Um, and it, nonetheless, I, I opted yet again, like Dave said, for another contemporary cover, and um, this time by the, the incredible jazz vocalist, Jane Monheit. Um Taking a Chance on Love is the title track from her fifth album. Uh, it was released in 2004. Monheit's singing is just nothing short of sensational. I mean, she has all the assets required of a great singer. Perfect intonation, tuning, a fine jazz feel. I mean, she has the inventive delivery and uncanny ability to make a song sound intimate, as though it were being performed for you alone. And she just, she channels Ella Fitzgerald, yet she has developed a style all her own. Um, you, you know, at the, at the turn of the century, prominent jazz singers fell roughly into two camps. You had these restless hybridizers like Cassandra Wilson, and you had these high-polished classicists like Diana Krall. And then in 2000 came Jane Monheit, and she just had these, you know, dark curls and an earnest comportment that accompanied a pristinely articulated style, Monheit was a jazz cabaret hybrid who, who rightfully soared to the head of the traditionalist pack. And the New York Times said in its review of her first release that she sings and acts a great deal like a sexy young white Ella Fitzgerald. Again, the highest praise you can give uh, a female vocalist. 20 plus years later, it just it still rings true. Um, on Monheit's version of the song, she echoes the purity of Jane Oliver, the dexterity of Keely Smith, the jazz smarts of Chris Conner, cabaret pizzazz of Julie Wilson all at once, if you, if you know those names. And, and her buttercream voice, it just caresses the song. It, it reveals both a trembling fragility and a buoyant playfulness. You need only to absorb her vocal agility, though, to recognize the raw talent that uh, has elicited you know, hyperbolic support from critics and recording labels. Um, She's just, she is the complete package. And, uh, oh boy, I, I, she's, her honeyed voice is, it, it continues to be compared to Ella. And I, I think for good reason. Both are gifted with an effortless melodicism, expert timing, and a gift for flawless diction. But more importantly, in addition to all of the, the technical things that Monheit does as a singer, the swinging, the scatting, all that, like Ella, before her, she just, she sings with great warmth. And, and simply put, Jane Monheit is extraordinary. Here I go again. I hear those trumpets blow again. I'll blow again. Taking a chance on love. Here I stand again. About to beat the band again. Feeling grand again. Taking a chance on love. I saw that cars were frame I never would try. But now. I'm taking the game up And the ace of hearts is high Things are mending now I see a rainbow blending now We'll have a happy ending now Taking a chance on love I gotta go again I hear those trumpets blow again Hold the glow again Taking a chance on love 
Just no, I just again, I'm there's just so much good talent out there today. I was shocked. Uh, just incredible. I mean, I just had another great new artist that I need to check out. Cool. Yeah, good yeah. stuff. Good uh, stuff. Four for four. I'm glad. Glad you're enjoying. Well, Robin McKelly, you were kind of iffy on, but no, not at all. I liked it a lot. Oh, I just, oh, okay. To me, it sounded so close to, to to the Ella's version. I didn't know why, but now you explained it. it, it it's kind of a loophole, so you can get Ella on there and get a couple of her <laughs> songs by other artists. Exactly. So I yeah. get it. Okay. I get it. Gotcha. All right. So, well, you mentioned when we were talking about Donnie Mathis um, breaking racial barriers. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, this next artist um, did that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I first heard Sammy Davis Jr. in elementary school when our teacher played a 45 in class, uh, The Candy, Candy Man. Man. Yes. Um, I this, still love that song to this day. The singer's only number one song, which originally appeared in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yep. And then he recorded a commercial version of that, which kind of became his signature song, although he wasn't <laughs> really enthusiastic about singing. It was pretty late in his career. Yeah. Um, he thought it was a little bit too, shall we say, sugary. Um, but uh, he went along with it, and it was very uh, successful for him. You see what you did there. Yeah, what I did there. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, uh, that, that's, you know, I at the time didn't know that was Sammy Davis Jr., but later on made those connections. Uh, I chose All of You, um, which um, you could say maybe is a signature song of his from earlier in his career, 1956, uh, from the album Forget Me Nots for First Nighters. Uh, Sammy Davis could do it all. He was a singer, he was a dancer, an actor, comedian. Uh, like I said, he helped to break the color barrier in the entertainment industry in the 1950s. Uh, I love this. Um, this has been widely told. But when golfing with Jack Benny, Sammy was asked what his handicap was. And he quipped, I'm a one-eyed Negro who's Jewish. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Davis lost his eye in a car accident um, a couple years later. He converted to Judaism. Uh, he said because he noticed the similarities between both communities and the oppression that they both uh, faced. Um, All of You was written by Cole Porter in 1954, recorded by Davis in, like I said, 56. And I just think that the song, in, in, in a real tight two minutes and 45 seconds, proves why he became a member of the Rat Pack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, Porter's version, here's another one. Um, again, it, it comes from the Broadway musical Silk Stockings. Right. And it was featured in the film version as well. Again, introduced to the world by Fred Astaire... I, I swear that man introduced more of the great American songbook than any other artist. I mean, it's everything can be traced back to Fred Astaire. It's it's uncanny. Um, yeah, now you you kind of gave it all. Um, I will say that singers love the song's introduction. You know, all of you. It just has that that amazing play on words. You know, for I've fallen for a certain lovely lass. And it's not a passing fancy or a fancy pass. I mean, it's just, it, it's genius, yeah. the, those lyrics by Porter. Um, Sammy's version, of course, backed by a big band arrangement. It, it's one of my favorites. I mean, he performs All of You with, with flair, just as he did with most of his songs, delivering showmanship uh, with, with just that little bit of kitsch, you know, thrown in for good measure. He always had that, I don't want, he was not campy, but he, but he always had, he was a showman. Well, I always think of Billy Crystal's impersonation of yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, pretty dead <laughs> on. Yeah, I, you know, Sammy Davis, he wasn't, he was, he was an extraordinary singer, but he wasn't a singer, he was a showman, you know. Um, and, you know, he was, I mean, he, he would tell everybody, you know, he was, he, he never called himself the most famous black, Puerto Rican, one-eyed Jewish entertainment in the world. What he always told everyone was that he was the only 
black Puerto Rican one-eyed Jewish entertainer in the world. And from the age of three, I mean, until his death, Davis just never stopped dancing, singing, acting, playing music. And he was known as Mr. Show Business for a reason. Oh, after watching her appeal from every angle, there's a big romantic deal I've got to wangle. For I've fallen for a certain lovely lass And it's not a passing fancy or a fancy pass I love the looks of you The lure of you The sweet of you The pure of you The eyes, the arms, the mouth of you The east, west, north and the south of you I'd love to gain complete control of you And handle even the heart and soul of you so love at least a small percent of me do For I love all of you Yeah, no, again, he's another one that I wanted to include, could not make him fit, and I was just overjoyed that you did. So another excellent pick. Yep. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't want to sound condescending because we've, we've had this discussion before where I say I'm really impressed. But I know you don't know jazz. Well, I'm picking all the obvious ones. So, Well, you are, but you're, it, it's not just the artist, though. I mean, uh, so far, I, your actual picks are just, they've been stellar. So I, I am. I'm really impressed. You, you, well, you did fantastic. Well, your next pick is the one I could have picked because it's one that I know. I think it's... Well, one of the yeah. greatest performances in recorded music history. And and this is another one. Um, there's only one performer of this song. I mean, it, it has been covered by others since, but this belongs to Etta James. Uh, my next pick is At Last. Um, you know, if, if a song can intoxicate, then, then blues singer out of Etta James' ballad is just this strong red wine. It's rich, it's elegant. Uh, the song's iconic crescendo of strings leads up to her drawn-out opening lyrics. At last, my love has come along. Uh, the song, it captures that moment of you finally said yes, you know, and it just, it resonates with hopeless romantics everywhere, I think. Um, you smiled, she sings, delicately, and, and then the spell was cast. But make no mistake, with every play, James casts her own spell on, on the listener. In the 50 years since she recorded this track, it has become the classic love anthem. It is just a permanent fixture of wedding receptions. Every wedding reception I play, uh, that I DJ, this song is requested. It never fails. I have three songs in total on my list that every wedding, still, um, they're requested. I mean, the standards still make uh, an appearance. What's, mo- what's maybe most satisfying about this song, though, is its placement on the album. The album is titled At Last as well. Uh, the song is the title track. And, you know, it is an album of lost and mangled love songs. Each and every one of them is just a heartbreaker in which relief and fulfillment begin to seem truly impossible. But then there's just that moment of extraordinary deliverance. Finally, James finds her man. Yeah, it's a person who doesn't get spooked, doesn't waver, doesn't leave her crumpled somewhere, alone and pining. My lonely days are over, and life is like a song 
she she sings. The album's title track, I mean, it's arguably the single greatest unburdening ever laid to tape. It plays like a person stumbling into a hotel room and simultaneously dropping all of their bags on the floor. Um, it's just 95 words long, but in this three-minute paragraph, James says more than any robust love letter ever could. I mean, it's just... This is this is the this is the love anthem. Uh, it, it's you know every newlywed couple, every bride, you know gushes when you play this song, and it, it's for good reason. And here's something else though that gets me: a lot of people, a lot of our listeners maybe don't identify James as a jazz vocalist. Um, they're mistaken. I mean, it's it's true. She's one of those singers that was everywhere. She's difficult to categorize. I mean, she successfully recorded in a number of styles. She, she had pioneering 1950s hits like The Wallflower and Good Rockin' Daddy that kind of assure her place in the early history of rock and roll. And although she never grew as popular as Aretha Franklin, for example, she was without question one of the, the premier soul artists of the 60s. Um, and and she, she has also been named the greatest of all modern blues singers and, and also carries the moniker of the undisputed Earth Mother. Yet her vocal style is so much to jazz vocalist Dinah Washington. And, you know, she, she was nominated for 13 Grammy Awards in the genres of R&B and blues. But the first Grammy win was for Best Jazz Vocal Performance. And, and Etta could do it all. I mean, she's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She's in the Grammy Hall of and Fame. And she just passed recently, didn't she? Yeah, she did. She just recently, uh, well, a couple of years ago, um, which was tragic. But, yeah, she is, she is one for the ages. There will never be another Etta James. At last My love has come along My lonely days are over Let me pick another obvious one. Uh, but I, this one, I, I, I truly love Billie Holiday. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Ella, Ella's my girl, but I love Billie Holiday, too. And um, I, I always liked um, her, but never really knew her story. Now, did you see the film that came uh, out last year? With Honor Day. Yeah, Honor Day played. The, yeah, the United America. States versus Billie Holiday. Yeah. And, yeah, she was incredible. Um, put that on the top of your list if you've not seen it. It's a Lee Daniels film that focuses on her rebellious performances of Strange Fruit uh, that the government attempted to stop her from um, singing. Right. It also presents her difficulty with substance abuse, which ultimately led to her early death. Oh, yeah. Her heroin addiction was awful. But it was uh, just one of my favorites from last year. Uh, I went with uh, another classic, obvious song, Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, her version of that. Uh, I really do like Ella and Satchmo's version of that song, oh, yeah. too, but we wanted to preserve those guys for, for, for a year later. So I figured this is a good one to go kind of kill two birds with one stone. Now, being from Ohio as a kid, 
Uh, I never quite understood or never even like knew anyone that said tomato or potato. <laughs> so I didn't quite understand the song because I'm like, well, who talks like that? You know, right. I just didn't know anybody British at the time. But I understood the sentiment and the irony was not lost on me, uh, even when I was young. And so for that, I love it. I'm not a lyrics guy, but this is one of those songs that just, you know, it's perfect. Uh, it was written by George Gershwin for the 1937 film Shall We Dance? Uh, originally recorded by Fred Astaire, who also starred in the film. But it was recorded the same year by the great Billie Holiday, uh, right when she was beginning her career as a vocalist with Count Basie. Yeah. Um, the original is available on Spotify, but I decided to include a newer recording of the song just because I think the production would fit a little bit better with the rest of the songs. So this is not the original in 1937 that she performed. This is a later recording that she did of the same song. Right. Yeah, and I... I you know, we shared each other's lists, and I think he made the right choice. I mean, it's, it's just, it's cleaner, you know? Well, yeah, anything and, recorded in 1937 isn't going to sound exactly, like... Exactly, yeah. They didn't have and, the technology. And, and I think about our mentioned songs, there will be a lot of them this time. We, sh we probably should put them on, but some of them are, I mean, they're just going to sound like they came from, right. you know, that era. There's nothing you can do about it. A lot it. of early Duke Ellington, you know, it's right. pretty, yeah. pretty dated sounding, but... Uh, um, well, you know, it really, I, I thought the same thing about that song, you know, Tomato, Tomato, and then Pajamas and Pajamas and Ersters. I always wondered who ordered Ersters, you know. Um, but I say it that way now just because of the song. Yeah, when, right. I order, when I order them, I order Ersters. <laughs> but really, I mean, the way that the Gershwins wrote it, it was, it was comparing the British and the American English accents. Right. But, but the difference in pronunciation, though, it's not simply regional. I, it also served... Uh, more specifically to identify class differences because at, at the time typical American pronunciations were considered less refined by the upper upper class and there was that, that special emphasis on the broader A sound you know as in darling you know darling um, so yeah I, they were they were kind of having fun with that um, Holiday's vocal style I mean Ella like you Ella's Ella's my number one but Billy Holiday oh good God. When I think I first got into, um, again, not being a jazz fan, my entry into a lot of these artists, you know, are a little bit different than a lot of people. Uh, when when you two did a tribute to her on Rattle and Hum with Angel of Harlem, yeah, uh, which is a great song, and uh, I kind of wanted to know more about Billie Holiday after hearing that song. Yeah, I she just, I mean, she she had a really tough life. She was in and out of prison. She had the heroin addiction that ultimately led, well, it. it it fed into alcoholism, which eventually took her life. Um, she died broke. I mean, she she died with nothing. Um, but you know, her her singing. I mean, her vocal style. It, it was strongly inspired by jazz instrumentalists. It, it featured a wonderful, fast fluttery vibrato that just it gave her sound energy and, and drive, with a little edge of fragility and anxiety. You know, she she also had that nasality that most singers would shy away from, but she made a feature of it in the higher part of her of her range. I mean, it was direct and it was in your face, and although her voice was not loud, that tone hit you right between the eyes. But then she would soften the edge by either sliding off the notes or using that lovely vibrato again. And she wasn't known for big range, but her, her well-produced, stable-mixed tone notes show that that wasn't because she couldn't do it. I mean, she had range. Rather... Holiday was, you know, she, she was an artist who really, she chose expression as her primary focus. And, of course, she was never entirely on time. This is what I loved about Billie Holiday. She was always 
behind the beats. And the big bands that performed with her, they, they kept that rhythm driving while she just sat a little behind it, you know, giving a feeling of ease and nonchalance. Billie Holiday is the artist that pioneered the manipulation of phrasing and tempo that pretty much now defines the sound of jazz vocalists everywhere. Um, jazz I, phrasing is it's so paramount to, to jazz vocalists. You know, you, do you fall before the beat, on the beat, after the beat? I mean, it's all about phrasing, and Billie Holiday invented that. I mean, she she's the pioneer of it, and she was never ahead though. She was always behind the beat. I I, I just I get chills listening to Billie Holiday. You say either, and I say either. You say neither, and I say neither. Either either, neither neither. Let's call the whole thing off. You like potato and I like potato. You like tomato and I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. But oh, if we call the whole thing off, then we must part. And oh, if we ever part, then that might break my heart. So if you like pajamas and I like pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. For we know we need each other, so we better call the calling off. Let's call the whole thing off. Okay, so here oh, is... Oh, you picked another obvious one. Good, I'm in good company. <laughs> yes, I, I said after those first four, I, I take the deep dive. I'm, I'm now going to hit all of these, you know, the, the artists that you expect to hear from. Um, my last song for today's episode, I chose You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You by Dean Martin. Uh, it was a popular song written by Russ Morgan, Larry Stock, James Cavanaugh, and it was published in 1944. The song was first recorded by Morgan. It was a hit for him in 46, reaching number 14 on the charts. Although Morgan was the first to release the song, Nat King Cole was actually the first to record it. Uh, Cole recorded it in 45, but he didn't include it until 1966, uh, when it was included on a compilation album. The best-known version of this song, though, without question, is by Dean Martin. Uh, He brought the tune to the top 40 in 64, and it became one of his signature songs. Uh, the song insists that you haven't lived until you've loved or been loved by someone else. And for all the lonely hearts out there uh, this this Valentine's Day, you need not worry because Dino also assures us that everybody loves somebody sometime. Um, as a performer, Martin was that greatest for rarities. I mean, he was a top-tier star who didn't mind playing second fiddle. In fact, he probably preferred it. Martin kind of fed off the vibe in the room. Um, and the other folks on stage. Didn't matter if it was Sinatra or Jerry Lewis, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, it was all the same to him. But any comparison to Sinatra, it eventually leads to this tricky question. You know, how good of a singer was Dean Martin? They were the, with Sammy Davis Jr., they were the trio from the Rat Pack that would perform together, you know, harmonizing. But Dean Martin, you know, it's surprisingly difficult to, to kind of address that, that question because Martin has such a cavalier attitude to his own vocal skills. Um, Jerry Jerome, who produced one of Martin's first recording sessions back in 47, he was absolutely shocked at how jaded Martin was already as his star was simply you know on the rise. Um, his career had hardly begun, but he didn't show the slightest excitement at making a record. 
and he was, he was real impatient to get on with things. And according to Jerome, Martin's banter in the studio was along the lines of, hell, let's do it, I don't care. I mean, that, that, was, that was the attitude of Dean Martin. And, and furthermore, Martin's stage persona may have been endearing, but it was also distracting. I mean, his vocal mannerisms could be ti- they can be tiresome. I mean, his choice in repertoire, it often seemed second rate. On the other hand, his relaxed demeanor was backed up by this just very relaxed vocal delivery. He never pushed. I can't think of a single recording where he sounds vo- vocally tired or lacking resonance. His diction is clear and swinging. But it's also really hard to hear Dean Martin in, in the midst of so many overproduced recordings. And the choirs and the strings, they too are distracting, and a lot of his recordings are hindered by the cliché and theatrical nature of his style. If you look through Martin's body of recorded work, it can get real frustrating. Because as, as your nobody till somebody loves you proves, he had all the tools for greatness as a jazz singer. But Martin just didn't give a damn. I mean, it's kind of, it's crazy. So, yeah. but uh, very definition of cool. Well, my, my uh, introduction to Dean Martin again, a roundabout way. Uh, we've talked about in the, in the 90s, there was a very brief swing uh, resurgence, um, uh, renaissance, oh, yes. and uh, it kind of culminated in Vince Vaughn and uh, Jean Favreau's film Swingers. Swingers. <laughs> I love that movie. Where these, you know, 20-something Gen Xers uh, decide that they're going to uh, go to Vegas and, and become the Rat Pack, you know, in their own imagination. Uh, great movie. And uh, this is the opening uh, credit sorry the opening uh, sequence of the movie is Dean Martin's You're Nobody yep. until somebody loves you so I uh, loved it then um, it has such a cool vibe and you know makes you kind of want to go back to the 60s scene in Vegas and but, it, yeah without question I mean it's it is just oh, love the song it's it's one of it's one that my wife and I sing all the time it's I wouldn't say it's our song but we we have a long history with the, this particular song. We always sing it to one another, and it's become kind of a running joke between us. You're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody cares. You may be king, you may possess the world's and its gold. But gold won't bring you happiness when you're growing old. The world still is the same, you never change it. As sure as the stars shine above, you're nobody till somebody loves you. So find yourself somebody to love. The Swingers soundtrack also got me into uh, Bobby Darren. I mean, I only knew Bobby Darren as far as the rock and roll, like Splish Splash Splish stuff. Splash, yeah. And then when I heard um, Beginning to See the Light, I realized there was a whole other oh, yeah. side of Bobby Darren, and he's probably my favorite. He, Darren, modern crooner, modern in the sense of crooners. We'll we'll get to him on side B, (laughs) but yeah, Darren, he is, he was just a fascinating musician. All right, well, you're number twelve. All right, you know, you bring up the '90s and that, you know, that return to to swing. That was largely, it was very much um, styled after Louis Prima. Um, I mean, it's. 
Louis Prima, and, and when he partnered up with Keely Smith, and when he partnered up with Boot Butera on, on the R&B sax, and just that combination of sounds, more than anything, that kind of laid the groundwork for the '90s resurgence. But I don't want to steal your. Well, I, just I don't want to steal your thunder. There's a connection so. here. So also included on the Swinger soundtrack um, was a version. It might have been by Big Bad Voodoo Daddy of "I Want to Be Like You" from yeah. Jungle Book. Yes. And if you've never heard of Louis Prima before, the f- very first time um, you hear him sing, you will immediately identify him as the uh, King Louis, the orangutan yep. from Disney, Disney's The Jungle Book, who sings, of course, I Want to Be Like You. So, um, yeah, as soon, the first time I heard I'm, I'm just it's one of the more distinguishable vocals oh, yeah. Um, yeah. out there. And, and yeah. I, I think for our generation, that's the first time any of us heard Right, Louis Prima. I always was kind of Louis. assumed. I didn't know much about him. I, I kind of assumed he was he was Cuban, but uh, he's actually New, New Orleans. Well, he's, he's he was from New Orleans, but he was he's an Italian. Oh, he's Italian. Okay, yeah. Italian. So definitely. I always Italian. Th- I thought yeah. Cuban, but uh, um, the song "Old Black Magic" is what we're referring to. So another obvious choice. But that "Old Black Magic" uh, was written in 1942 for the film "Star Spangled Rhythm" by Harold Arnold and Johnny Mercer. Johnny Mercer is a name that pops up quite a bit. Oh yeah. Uh, and originally sung by Johnny Johnson. I chose the version recorded as a duet by husband and wife team, uh, Louis Prima and Keely Smith, as you already mentioned, in 1958. Um, which, and you may know this, but uh, do you know there's a version of it with Kermit the Frog? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kermit's the one in drag, actually, in the because Sam Sam plays the the male. Yes, in the yes. Duet, yeah. Uh, yeah. Prior to prior to Jim Henson's uh, The Muppet Show in the 70s, there was a show in the 1950s called uh, it was like a little short called Sam and Friends, where yep. Kermit the Frog was a featured uh, Muppet or puppet at the time. And yes, Kermit the Frog, dressed in drag, uh, performs this with Prima. So check it out on YouTube yep. if you get a chance. Um, this song may not fit well during the dinner, if, if we're having a romantic dinner date, uh, but this one is perfect for the after-dessert dancing. Uh, once I, in fact, I, I kick off the dancing segment of the evening with this song, uh, another swinging number. Old black magic has me in a spell. Icy fingers up and down my spine The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine Same old tingle that I feel inside And then that elevator starts its ride Down and down I go Round and around I go Like a leaf caught in a tide I should stay away but what can I do This is one of my this is one of my favorite songs, honestly, and I their duet is just incredible. I, Prima, he was a New Orleans-based trumpeter, and, and he was just this good-humored singer, a lovable personality. He he celebrated and made fun of his Italian heritage all the time in his music, and he displayed the influence of. Louis Armstrong in both his singing and playing while carving out his own musical niche, you know, and uh, in 1948, he stumbled upon a young girl named Keely Smith. She was barely a performer at all. She was half his age, and she was destined for a relatively quiet life, and their encounter was pure coincidence. And then with the help of fiery R&B tenor saxophonist Sam Butera, I mean, they, they went on to invent what was called the wildest. It was, it was the most exciting and successful lounge act 
Las Vegas has ever seen, to, still to this day. And the recordings were hugely popular. I mean, they, you know, they recorded by Sinatra, Sullivan, Robert Mitchum, all these well-known entertainers of the day. And their professional success, it just helped bring about the rise of Las Vegas as a mecca of American entertainment. And we, we know about the Rat Pack, but Louis Prima, his show, his lounge act, it more than anything really brought the the people in to, to Las Vegas. And it might have been the rock and roll era, but Prima, I mean, he staged this unprecedented comeback in the post-Big Band era, um, you know, suddenly competing with the likes of Sinatra and Elvis Presley, you know, with with his music. I think Gen Xers, without question, we know him best probably vicariously through David Lee Roth, you know, yeah. just a yeah. gigolo. I, yeah. I ain't yeah. got nobody. Um, but yeah, that old black magic. I mean, it's, it's just a killer tune and it's a song that's been covered by everybody, like you said, but this one, I mean, it reached number 18 on the hot 100. It won the 1958 Grammy award for best pop duo. And, Really, I dare you to find a song as thrilling as, as Prima and Smith's That Old Black Magic. I love her performance, too. Oh, yeah. I didn't she, talk a lot about her, but she's Oh, she's incredible. And, great. You know, just the spontaneity, the energy, the butchering of Italo English, <laughs> and the sheer fun of turning it up loud. I mean, it just makes it this wild carnival ride from start to finish. And, you know, their, their marriage ended badly soon after. But in the recording, you can tell just how crazy they were about one another at the time of the recording. I mean, Keely clowns around, you know, she calls Louis Luigi, and she delivers unexpected sides throughout. Louis Prima, um, Louis, as he was known to his friends, he breaks the fourth wall time and again in response to her sprightly jabs. I mean, little things like that, it just makes the, the pairing of the two of them spontaneous and delightful. I mean, it's just, this song always makes me smile. I love it. It's fantastic. So. All right, well, that's side A. That is side A, yeah. Um, am I talking too much? No, we're good. Look, we're right the, on track. Are we? I'm looking at the time signature. I'm thinking we're running a little bit longer than yeah, we did. We, we had a long introduction, few. but it was a good discussion. Okay. Now, I, again, I can't thank you enough for this. And 12 more are coming next week. So, oh, boy. Um, anything you want to say as we close our Valentine's Day side A? No, I, I think I'm good. Okay. All right. All right. We'll be back next week. Uh, that's all. That's all for now. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject, and we will see you on the flip side. Mm-hmm.